Okay, the Fictoplasm Podcast, episode 79, The Eternal Champion by Michael Moorcock. So, uh, if you're new to this series, um, what I'm doing is reading through the 14 volumes of The Tale of the Eternal Champion, which were published in the 90s. And I'm pretty sure that Moorcock had a lot of influence in the order in which they're presented to the reader. So, for that reason, I'm reading them in order. The last episode was Von Beck, and this one is The Eternal Champion, which comprises the three novels The Eternal Champion, Phoenix and Obsidian, and The Dragon in the Sword. The cover is the first of several by Yoshitaka Amano, and uh, they illustrated seven out of the 14 volumes. This one could well be my favourite. I mean, there's something about the curve of the champion's helm and cloak, uh, the way they hold their lover, uh, the detail of their sword, um, the background, which is a grey, suggesting a mist or something, some ancient structures, pennants flying in the wind. It um, it really captures the interplay between the champion's martial nature and their desires for peace and intimacy. Now, there's a foreword to all of the volumes, as far as I know. In this one, Moorcock mentions, you know, there's, there's also a foreword in The Eternal Champion, which is the revised version of the original novel. And... Um, uh, as he says, as you will see from the introduction to the first revised edition of The Eternal Champion, this is the foundation for almost all of my fantastic romances and a number of comedies as well. Melodrama and comedy have much in common. Both depend upon concentrated focus and exaggeration, and both demand a certain suspension of disbelief from the reader, offering in return some relief from our daily realities. But they must also, if they are to do their job best, be rooted somehow in shared experience. So what I'm going to do is give a brief summary or synopsis of each novel. Then I'm going to talk about key elements from those novels. And finally, I'm going to consider this volume as a whole and what we get from it in reading this in the sequence in which it's presented. The first book is dedicated to Douglas Fairbanks, and this is Warcock's first Eternal Champion novel, but it's presented here in a revised form, so I'm not clear how much it's been updated. And given that Moorcock revised earlier novels and short stories to include Von Beck, and Von Beck's name is present in this novel from 1957, it suggests that this revision came at least after The Warhound and the World's Pain, and it name-checks a number of incarnations of the Eternal Champion. But the plot is... A character called John Dacre is called across time and space to become Ericosa. I hope I've pronounced that right. There's an umlaut over the final E. Ericosa is humanity's champion who vowed to return in its hour of need. Now humanity faces the threat of the Eldren, which is supposedly a duplicitous magical race that is their ancient enemy. Despite the fact that it basically keeps itself to itself on the continent it occupies, while humanity lives on the other two. Ericosa is summoned by... King Rhyginos falls in love with his daughter Iolinda and is placed at the head of the armies of humanity to wipe out the Eldrin menace. Now, there's no evidence that the Eldrin are what the humans say they are, but Ericosa kind of gets swept up in this wave of populist feeling. All the humans he interacts with claim that the Eldrin's demeanour is a trick, that they have inhuman appetites for destruction and are without honour. Yet, at every turn in the ensuing war, Ericosa sees humans breaking truces, failing to honour an exchange of hostages, slaying women and children, and calling it a great victory. And there is a political undercurrent to all of this. 
The ordinary citizens have blamed the Eldren for their own misfortunes and living conditions, when maybe they should be looking at their political masters who live in magnificent jewel towers while they live in little more than hovels. And Erikosa is a figurehead that's being basically manipulated for political gain, and Rajanos is treating him like a personal champion rather than the champion of humanity. But what happens next is Erikos' views are changed by contact with the Princess Ermazard, who he forms in love with, whilst she's their captive. He still thinks he loves Ayalinda, and perversely, to keep her hand and prove that he's not actually in love with Ermazard, he pledges to slay every Eldrin, commit genocide, even though there's evidence that the Eldrin are no threat. So he commits this genocide on the Eldrin, and fighting them to their last city of Lustakoi at the Plains of Melting Ice, and here he's finally convinced to attempt peace after speaking directly with the leader of their dwindling race. As a consequence, and after saying, no, we can make peace, we should turn back, he's branded a traitor by his own kind, so he ends up standing with the Eldrin in their besieged city. Now, the Eldrin and humans are both colonists of this world, it seems, and for centuries they battled with terrible weapons that scarred the landscape, but the Eldrin relented and vowed not to use them at the cost of the Earth. The human loss of the same technologies came in a different way. It came from their infighting and general degeneration of society. They lost skills, they lost knowledge. So Erikosa convinces Prince Arjav to let him use the weapons in defence, of uh, Luz Tukoy, and they then wipe out a million-strong army in a couple of hours. That includes his lover, Ayalinda. But he doesn't then stop there. He commits a second genocide, this time totally and utterly wiping out humanity, uh, destroying its wonderful cities, melting them to slag and into the mountainside, uh, under the notion that they'll never change. And he ends up being immortal with Ermazard and... Arjav and the rest of the Eldrin in their final city. And for a moment he has peace. But then his dreams are interrupted again, and this is the start of the second novel, Phoenix in Obsidian. The second book's delegated to Doug and Gala Hill. Um, this is, I believe, Doug Hill, the um, uh, Doug Hill, the author who later wrote um, Galactic Warlord and Deathwing Over Vayner, which I really enjoyed as a kid. Uh, his partner isn't talked about very much on Wikipedia, but uh, her, her maiden name was Robinson. She's Gail Robinson, a Canadian poet and author. Shame we don't know more about her. Um, anyway, this second book, published in 1970, continues the timeline of Ericosa, or I think I'd better refer to this character as John Dacre, and we'll explain why later. Um, so it continues the timeline of John Dacre, the intelligence that inhabits Ericosa and other eternal champions. So after a period of peace, John Dacre starts getting dreams of his other selves. Um, it seems that the ghost worlds, the, the term used for the other worlds of the multiverse in the first novel are once again in conjunction and near to this earth and as a consequence it's summoning him away from the Eldrin to become Ulrich Skarsol, Lord of the Southern Ice in a, a dying earth at the end of time that's slowly freezing over. So he awakens to his new self on a chariot pulled by four long-limbed polar bears. He meets the men of Bishop Belfig, the Lord Spiritual of Roanark, the Obsidian City. 
and and Belfig is this depraved character whose chambers are decorated with bas relief sculptures of fantastic creatures engaged in every perversion, such that it looks like hell itself. The city is kind of just this one ongoing orgy. Now, the bishop does share rulership with Shanusvain, the Lord Temporal, who lives an altogether ascetic existence in very stark contrast with the bishop. And you can see how these two are balanced out. You know, you've got the uh, duality of heaven and hell, or law and chaos. Um, Shanusvain is just as flawed as Belfig, but is unchanging as is law. And it's in this novel that we get the first suggestions of the conflict between law and chaos. These didn't feature at all in the previous novel. Shanusvain, by the way, tells um, Ulrich of the Silver Warriors who are at war with humanity from the far-off city of Moon. It's actually our moon that's crashed into the earth, and they call it the City of Moon now. But strangely, Belfig left this out of his briefing to Ulrich. So... Ulrich gets access to the Keep's libraries and out of necessity enjoys the bishop's hospitality. And part of this hospitality is a hunt of a creature called a sea stag across a sea with the consistency of grey porridge. And it's supposedly so salty and so concentrated that it is now incredibly viscous. I'm not sure if that's chemically possible. I'm going to look into that. Um, still, it's a brilliant image. I mean, the idea that it, it is almost like quicksand and the beasts of burden, which are like these enormous evolved sea lions, um, power ac almost across the top of it on massive flippers. Uh, and there are, But there are creatures that can actually swim in it, and one of this is the sea stag, which is kind of a cross between a stag with antlers and some kind of leviathan or whale. Now, crucially, before this scene, he's visited by a vision that says you must take up the black sword or, or the cold sword, uh, or you will never know peace. It's your job as the eternal champion. And at the same time, he gets the he gets the um, sensation that he should refuse this because it is um, an object of horror. Uh, it is a, a, a terrible artifact that will betray the wielder and bring ruin to the people it supposedly tries to save. Um, but he ignores this dream. So they go out on the uh, they go out on the sea to hunt the sea stag, and the next thing they encounter is a vision of a massive chalice sounding like a bell and calling out to Ulrich that he must carry the black sword. This freaks the bishop out. Um, the bishop is also uh, a bit freaked out that he now knows about the silver warriors as well. And this gives a hint about what the bishop is actually up to. He doesn't want Ulrich to know. So what happens is they find the stag. This is massive climactic battle, and they end up, the bishop ends up marooning him on a on a, a spar of rock about fifty yards wide, that um, and just leaving. This, this is the sea stag's lair, and they just leave him there after he's dispatched it. Uh, here he's beset by more visions of the black sword, and then he has a cryptic appearance of this ghostly laughing dwarf named Jeremis the Crooked, who purports to know more than one of his incarnations, and also says that, well, he appears when the ghost worlds are aligned and allow him to contact the other worlds. So they have this conversation, and then he disappears as quickly as he appeared, uh, and then Ulrich is then rescued by the warriors of the Red Fjord, led by Bladrak Morningstar, and they're the ones who actually rang the bell. They've been in contact with a character called the Lady of the Chalice, and summoned him from his other existence in order to fix this world, and they've got his black sword with them in a chest. Um, you know, it's undoubtedly the black sword, completely with soul-drinking habits, um, and he recoils from it. Finally, he 
relents uh, and wields it as he understands that until he embraces it, he won't get back to Ermesad. And so he begins to fulfill a prophecy. Humans are rescued from slavery by the Silver Warriors, who it turns out are under the control of Bishop Belphick because he has their queen captive. Their queen turns out to be the Lady of the Chalice. The Lady of the Chalice, who appeared to the Red Fjord Warriors, was a projection. Um, so Ulrich rescues her, shedding a lot of blood in the process, as is the Eternal Champions want. And the pervy bishop gets his just desserts at the end of the Black Sword. Uh, but after everything that's now happened, and this is possibly one of the more interesting bits of the novel, Ulrich claims his prize from the Silver Queen. She's the one who calls him, and what he wants is answers. She, He wants her to explain his place in the cosmos, which she does. And he also wants her to fill, fulfil her part of the prophecy, which is, well... The chalice needs to be filled with blood in order to reignite the sun. Essentially, she's sacrificed to the black sword. Her blood goes into the chalice, which rises up into the heavens and restarts the sun on the frozen world. And that's the fairly abrupt end to that story. Now, before I talk about the third one, there is a novel, there is a graphic novel in between these two called uh, The Swords of Heaven, The Flowers of Hell, which features... Uh, another incarnation of the Eternal Champion called Clan of Klengar. It's credited to Howard Chaikin, a fairly well-known comics author. It appears to be in the heavy metal imprint, and it's also called Michael Moorcock's The Swords of Heaven, The Flowers of Hell. So there's some sort of collaboration that went on between Chaikin and Moorcock. It's short. It's quite fun because, for one thing, I think Clan of Klengar, this Eternal Champion, is supposedly Bert, Bert Lancaster with a top knot. And uh, one of his lovers is uh, Elizabeth Taylor, I think. Not sure. Um, and he emerges initially. The, the first scene is actually Ulrich crossing the ice with his bear-driven chariot. Uh, and then he finds himself in this altogether different place. Um, his clan of Klenglard, Lord of the G Lord of the Dream Marches, that exist between heaven and hell. The angels of heaven apparently piss acid rain onto hell, and they're these gigantic manta rays. Heaven is kind of occupied by Lord Furor, who's this arrogant scientist, and uh, eventually ends up on the point of Clan and Klengar's um, sword after he tries, first of all, to murder him with a demon, then feed him to a dragon, and then finally feed him to the angels, who turn out to, turn out to be an extraterrestrial race. It's it's a lot of fun. It's kind of it kind of feels like Morcock by numbers to a certain extent, but it is. But it also has the you know the, the the breadth of vision that Moorcock does. It doesn't seem that it's sequentially in line with these two novels because at the start of the third novel, um, the Dragon in the Sword, there's this massive prologue where it talks about his various incarnations, and it talks at length about a vision that Ulrich Scarsol, who's you know in bed with fever in these dreams, is now experiencing. Um, hallucinations of his other lives and a conversation with the knight in black and yellow. Uh, this is probably the same character as the warrior in Jet and Gold from Hawkmoon. After you know a, a series of discussions with the knight about his obligations as the eternal champion to pick up the sword, uh, he finds himself, he, John Dacre, finds himself incarnated as Prince Flamadin in Marschenheim, which is one of six realms that are very similar to and apparently intersect with the middle marches of our earth 
And this is how, in the very first chapter, he comes upon another of the von Beck bloodline, his Ulrich von Beck, who's an objector to the uh, Nazi regime in Germany and was, for a time, in one of their concentration camps and has vowed to defeat Hitler. And this story takes uh, John Dacre as Flamadin through the Six Realms as he discovers that Flamadin has been outlawed by his sister and fiance, Princess Sharadin, in their own realm. Uh, she claims that he tried to kill her, and she in turn killed him. So Sharadim is apparently evil. She's got her eyes on this mythical sword which contains a dragon, and with which she plans to seek an alliance with Archduke Baralizarf of Chaos. At the same time, uh, Dacre is reunited with the Eldren, who seem to be the ones who've summoned him, although a faction of them have seemingly confused him with his sister. Anyway, they're the last of their race, and Dacre is moved to help them find the sword and reunite them with the male part of their race, who have been separated from them by a past schism. So this novel starts out of one of Moorcock's adventures into a mysterious land, you know, populated by moving cities who prey upon the land. And I do wonder if this influenced Philip Reeve's Mortal Engines. Um, but then it becomes this kind of romantic adventure where the apparently dead Prince Flamadin confronts his sister right at her coronation. And then it becomes a journey across the plains, meeting Ursine princes, and Jeremiah the Crooked turns up again, and the Dukes of Chaos, uh, and finding the Holy Grail in the hands of Nazis. Yeah, really. Um, so it's kind of a melange of all things Moorcock. Um, and it's as much a sequel to Von Beck as The Eternal Champion. And then there's the predictable showdown between good and evil. I found this book to be longer than it needed to be, quite frankly. Um, granted, it has a lot of the description, the verbal sparring of Moorcock's 80s novels. Uh, and this makes it a fun read, but it does drag a bit. And the champion's led by the nose by various characters, um, which, to be fair, that happens in the other, no other novels as well. Um, He's granted powerful magic stones. The Arcturios from uh, from the later Elric of Melnibone turns up as a, a magic MacGuffin. Uh, he, he gets the dragon in the sword. Uh, he's directed in the use of these artifacts by forces beyond normal scale. But still, there's this big payoff at the end with some really spectacular scenes involving the battle for John Dacre's identity and soul, the warriors at the edge of time. Yeah, that's taken directly from the Hawkwind's 1975 album Warrior at the Edge of Time, where Moorcock wrote some of the lyrics. Um, and then there's the breaking of the sword, which frees the dragon, which uh, helps the Eldren go through a portal to the, their home realm. And there's a nice finality to all of this when it's made that this is not simply the end of the war but it's an end to a cycle in the multiverse and there's a hint from Jeremus the Crooked that we won't even see what happens in Melnibone for several more of these cycles and finally John Dacre gets deposited by the black ship who who takes him between realities back to Tower Bridge now wholly himself crucially he doesn't get the girl he doesn't get to return to Ermazard at least to Kai um, the best he has is hope and peace and you know the the memory of of his love okay so now i want to sort of pick out some scenes and themes from each of the stories first let's look about the eternal champion which was written in 1957 and it's the real start for moorcock for the eternal champion he calls it sort of not a particularly complicated novel which it isn't um, and i remember the first time i read it in you know when i was in my 20s i was a bit underwhelmed but it really gets better with each reread. 
particularly if you don't expect or think of it as a multiversal novel, if you just think of it as a self-contained novel about people transporting an ancient warrior through time and space. And I think that's one of the reasons it gets better is because it's just unencumbered with the later mythology of the series. So the bits I want to pick out, the, the, the first bit is the, the arrival of Ericosa, John Dacre as Ericosa. Um, he's, he's basically, he emerges from his tomb in a human city of, uh, I can't remember what it's called, Necronal, I think. Um, and he's immediately handed his sword, Kanajana, which is a, a version of the black sword, but it's it's basically a poisoned blade that only he can wield, and it emits some radiation that's inimical to human life. Uh, but otherwise, it doesn't do a lot. It certainly doesn't have its own um, its own agenda. It's just an extension of him, and some kind of sign of his, I don't know, divinity, um, immortality. It's a very striking initial scene where you have this mighty warrior, completely naked, you know, just holding this sword, and everyone around him is scared beyond belief because he he won't sheathe the sword, which apparently has a radiation that could kill him. But eventually he does, he's dressed, and then he starts to find out his place in it, and he forms rivalries with the captain of the guard, Katorn, and uh, and you know, starts having adventures. Another th- element of this is the, uh, as I mentioned, the populist and nationalist feeling that's clearly driving the humans, and kind of relevant to today is, is the political masters are basically choosing um, a, a foreign enemy to stir people up and make them forget the real troubles at home. One of the really memorable scenes, apart from the, the you know, there's the battle scenes where nobody dies a good death. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. One of the one of the memorable scenes, uh, this comes to a head where he's obviously being used as a figurehead. He has this standoff with King Rajanos saying basically, "I'm not your champion. I'm humanity's champion." And before before this, he's he's alternately been sort of swept up and besotted with Ilinda and not really thought about this. But um, as as he gets more and more evidence that things are you know he's being manipulated and the older aren't what people say they are um he you know he, he basically snaps at this point another interesting thing about this first novel there are no gods there is one mention of the good one capitalized and the idea is this good one is uh has has the has given the blessing to humanity to wipe out their ancient enemy so it is a monotheistic religion Supposedly they're doing this in the with the they believe in the full blessing of their god, but there's nothing else said about it, and that is kind of interesting, given how much we know of the rest of the series. But anyway, I said that nobody dies a good death. Um, what happens is that the war in this really isn't glorious at all. People die from a cut from Ericos's poisoned sword, uh, cut on the face or the wrist, and they just you know die in agony. Um, uh, the king dies with an arrow through the thigh um, while he's still riding his force and nobody's actually noticed him dying. Um, the uh, the enemy, they get shot through, one, one enemy captain under colour of truce gets shot through the throat by human treachery. Um, and uh, at the end of this massive battle, um, there's no way that humanity can face the incredible weapons of the Eldrin, but, and, and they just get burnt to a crisp. Uh, despite having every chance to avoid destruction. So there is nothing good about everyone dying. And and this is kind of an important central message. And I just want to underscore that with the very last passage in, in the book. And this is John Dacre as Ericosa talking with 
uh, Prince Arjar for musing over what he has done after he's basically wiped out every shred of humanity from the earth. For one woman's wrath, said Prince Arjav, and another's love, you did this. I shrugged. I do not know. I think I did it for the only kind of peace that will last. I know my race too well. This earth would have been forever rent by strife of some kind. I had to decide who best deserved to live. If they'd destroyed the Eldren, they would have soon turned on each other, as you know. And they fight for such empty things, too. For power over their fellows, for a bauble, for an extra acre of land that they will not till, for possession of a woman who doesn't want them. You decided that. You took this vast responsibility onto your own shoulders. You judged them and executed them according to your own interpretation of justice, Ajar said quietly. Really, Ericosa, I do not think you know yet what you have done. I sighed. But it is done, I said. Yes, his eyes were full of a profound pity for me. He gripped my arm. Come, friend, back to Mernadin. Leave this stink behind. Ermazad waits for you. I was an empty man then, bereft of emotion. I followed him toward the river. It moved sluggishly now. It was choked with black dust, with burnt flesh. I think I did right, I said. It was not my will, you know, but something else. I think it might have been my fate from the beginning. I think it was another will than mine which dragged me here, not Rajanos. Rajanos, like me, was a puppet, a tool used as I was used. It was preordained that humanity should die on this planet. It is better that you think that, he said. Come now, let us go home. I rate Eternal Champion five stars. Uh, it doesn't really advance the mythology, but it's really, really consistent in its own themes, and it's very well paced, better than the other two novels. So let's talk about The Phoenix in Obsidian. Uh, Timing-wise, this was written in 1970, so it's contemporary with the fantasy fiction that's arguably the most popular of the stuff that we know the best. And we'll get into that in the next few episodes. But then... Dragon in the Sword shows a more reflective and complex Moorcock, and certainly one who wants to answer some big questions and make use of metaphor and symbolism in his writing. I think that Dragon in the Sword is kind of a convergence of Von Beck and the Eternal Champion in this regard. And there are more recent novels in the sequence featuring Elric, by the way, and it will be interesting to show how these contrast with the novels written 20 years earlier. But that's a, that's a way off in, in the timeline of the podcast. Anyway... Interesting bits from Phoenix and Obsidian. Um, the initial few chapters uh, I really enjoyed with uh, Bishop Belvig, The Hunt for the Sea Stag, pure psychedelic fantasy, a really inventive, exciting, dangerous world full of weird characters. Uh, so you know, this initial start, very, very strong. And then the concept of a city called Moon, that's actually our moon, crashed into the Earth also really interesting. Um, now, there are a couple of useful things that I mentioned, and the first one is the, the reference to Orbeck as having shaped the world from raw chaos. Orbeck is uh, certainly part of Von Beck's bloodline, and he's a character who features in Earl Beck, I think he's Lormirian, uh, and this is a, an ancestor supposedly of Elric's um, yeah, I'm kind of, get, kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but there's this notion that Orbeck shaped the world from raw chaos by will alone, had conquered chaos and turned it into something more solid. Just 
kind of an interesting thing for a champion to do. Orbeck is certainly a former incarnation of the Eternal Champion. And of course, there's also the introduction of the notions of gods of law and chaos, particularly in the conversation that Jeremos the Crooked has with Ulrich, or John Dacre, Ulrich. But overall, I rate this one three and a half stars. Uh, for this reason, it's so good in the early chapters. It's so good. But at the end, it feels so hurried, so desperate to, uh, you know, to conclude itself. So I don't know what was going on with Moorcock's writing at this time. Well, we do know this was the idea that he wrote a novel in, in three nights or whatever with a, a bottle of whiskey a night or something. Um, but I think that there's, there's so many interesting things here. It's only 120 pages long. And if it had been slightly longer, possibly we would have seen some more things. But there's no discussion of Dacre's relationship with the Eldrin in this case. They're simply puppets used by Bishop's bell thing. Um, I still think it's it's worth reading because it's not long and uh, and it has interesting stuff to do with the Black Sword. The ending where they regenerate the sun is fantastic um, but it's not quite as tight as the first book. So on to the third one. Uh, as I said that you know, this was you know, Moorcock with 15 years of reflection on the concepts that, let's say, they peaked around 1970-ish. Um, and it's as much a Von Beck novel as an Eternal Champion novel, The Dragon and the Sword. It has a lot in common with the style with The City and the Autumn Stars, which is, perhaps isn't a surprise. It was published a year before. The things that really stand out, the extended prologue uh, in The Dragon and the Sword includes conversations with the knight in black and gold, who is a character we, we know to serve the balance, um, and also the reference to the warriors at the edge of time, uh, and it's um, standing on the edge of time, I think, is from the, the Hawkwind song, that um, I think it's Moorcock actually singing that or, or speaking that. He, he speaks in a couple of songs on that album, the other one being The Wizard Blew My Horn. Sorry, The Wizard Blew His Horn. Um, so this prologue itself is kind of, uh, that, that really sets the tone of the whole saga. And in a way that this sets the tone of the, the third novel is kind of trying to answer some questions as I mentioned. And there are some great, great bits of description. For example, the hulls, the, the cities, um, they are wonderfully described as complete living organisms of people, uh, with their own governance. Um, there's a, an absolutely brilliant scene towards the end where Ericosa, John Dacre, uh, Prince Flamadin wades through this lake of blood and he starts to drown because he's weighed down with the with these, his sense of his other selves. And he survives this by divesting himself of these other identities and uh, fully becoming John Dacre. And I thought that was very interesting right at the end. And the conclusion is neat as well, this suggestion that it's a cycle. Um, but also, I only rate this novel three and a half stars. There are really great bits in it, but it becomes plodding in the middle, kind of arbitrary towards the end, and it changes kind of tone and theme in different places. Still, as part of a you know a collection of three books to read, I have enjoyed the consistency that's run through all of this um, of the idea of of John Dacre uh, as a you know an observer kind of having leapt into the body of the Eternal Champion, much like Quantum Leap, and fulfilling a role in whatever world he should be in, but also having his own opinions of what's going on as John Dacre. And so I'm going to finish off by just talking about the place of this 
uh, this collection in the sequence. First of all, I'm going to say that this is about the Eternal Champion as a person and as a self-aware individual and an observer of the events that they get inserted into, as opposed to the norm, which is, you know, a, a version of the Eternal Champion fully immersed and in and consistent with the world in which they fight. So here, the Eternal Champion is a participant, but also a spectator and commentator. And I find that that interesting as a theme. It's because it's then commenting on the entire uh, relationship of us, the reader, to fantastic fiction. It's all written in the first person, by the way. The other thing this adds, of course, is the it establishes the Eldrin, uh, the relationship between the Eldrin and the Eternal Champion, the fact that they are also Vadakh and Malnabunians and other races, and the fact that man is also the Mabdan. That'll turn up in um, Corum. I mentioned as Mabden in the um, in the Dragon and the Sword as well, and then of course the the other thing that this one adds uh, the names of the higher powers at play um, from the second novel onwards, where the conflict happens between individually individuality and the Eternal Champion. We also get mentions of law and chaos, and we get the iconography of the sword, the chalice, uh, symbols of the balance, the symbol of the black sword. The last thing, though, I think, which is possibly the most interesting are cycles. So Moorcox presented this idea that everything that comes after this novel is part of a cycle in the multiverse, an interplay of cosmic forces that is self-perpetuating. And this kind of uh, this kind of frees the author from needing to make more high-level explanations in the future for the forthcoming cycles, um, which you may think is kind of... Um, uh, kind of subjectivist, or kind of, uh, or kind of a cop out, maybe. I kind of think it's it phrases from thinking too hard about cosmological elements, and we simply accept these icons as they are, and then we start to think about the characters and the situations. So I think that that is kind of what this volume offers us. It's kind of a primer into the multiversal cycle and the role of the champion in bearing certain weapons and mediating between law and chaos and serving the balance, or serving law and chaos alternately. And that's just about it for this episode, but I want to give a brief nod to listener John Hagen. I hope I've pronounced your name right, sir. John made a comment on Facebook uh, about other versions of Von Beck we might like to see following the Von Beck episode. Uh, so he suggested um, maybe Von Beck on the Western Front during World War One, or the Cold War but also the novel suggestion of Von Beck's daughter as an international tennis player. But the best one, and, and the one that I think I fancy turning into a game if I can, is a 1970s game of Mirrenberg FC with Lucifer as the team's manager and Von Beck as their star striker. So I've already started to think about how I could make this happen and, you know, what the Mittelmarch Premier League table would look like and how Johann Klosterheim will fit into the plot. Obviously, they're, they're playing for the grail as the literal cup. So thanks for that, John. That's a fantastic idea. And thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed, please like, share, subscribe, comment on Twitter, Facebook and the website. Until next time. Bye bye.